Hi, this is Raj Sharma. I'm the founder of Public Spend Forum. Before we get started with today's episode, I'd like to thank our sponsor, iValio. iValio is an e-procurement platform that enables the entire procurement process for public sector as well as private sector clients. iValio is working with states such as Ohio, Arizona, Maryland, and cities such as New York, British Columbia, as well as federal government clients such as the government of Canada. Please check out iValio's website at iValio.com. Welcome everyone to another episode of our podcast series, Public Procurement Leaders, where we interview and talk to uh, forward-thinking public sector leaders, private sector leaders, and experts from all over the field of public procurement. Uh, today, I'm really excited to welcome somebody on the phone from London, where it's raining as usual, uh, the esteemed Peter Smith. Hi, Peter. Hi, Raj. Well, Peter and I have gotten to know each other fairly well over the past many years. Uh, I have been lucky enough to work with Peter um, as part of Public Spend Forum, and, uh, and Peter has served as an advisor as well as a contributor and uh, really led uh, some of our work in the UK and Europe. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit about Peter and we'll jump into a conversation. Um, so uh, if you don't know, uh, Peter um, has a master's in math. I start there because anybody who has a master's in math, I know they're way, way smarter than I am. So I've definitely learned a lot. And uh, so that <laughs> uh, from there, um, uh, Peter's uh, career spans private and public sectors. So um, Peter served as the procurement director um, a while back at the National Westminster Bank. Uh, he was also European procurement director at Dun & Bradstreet. Uh, he's also held various public sector positions, including commercial director for the Identity and Passport Service, advisor to the Office of Government and Commerce, um, and, and so Peter will fill us in more about this, but um, Peter also served as president of the uh, president of SIPS, uh, which is the Chartered Institute of Purchasing and Supply, if you did not know. Uh, and most recently, uh, Peter is um, retiring, I say, but Peter is very actively working. So uh, he, uh, he's uh, just most recently served as managing editor of Spend Matters Europe. And I, as I mentioned, he's also a contributor and leading some of our work with Public Spend Forum. And uh, now um, Peter is also um, serving as an advisor and a consultant through his firm, Procurement Excellence. So uh, Peter, I may have missed some things here, so maybe we can start off and, um, and really welcome you to the show. And um, you know, uh, I always start off with this one question, public procurement, and procurement in general, how did you end up in this profession? Because nobody has done it, as far as I know, by design. Yeah, I'm no, no, it, <laughs> it wasn't deliberate. I was working at Mars Confectionery, joined straight from university as a graduate trainee. Um, I'd done a few things at Mars for my first four years or so there. And uh, I thought I was going to move towards marketing, actually. And I literally got tapped on the shoulder one day uh, by an HR manager who said, that, that job in purchasing, it closes this week. You haven't got your application in yet. I said, I'd never even thought about doing it. And he said, oh, I think you probably should, which was either that they identified I was going to be really good in purchasing or they wanted to get me out of the job I was doing at the time, 
an office-based sales job, which I think I probably really was pretty bad at. Um, so, and I think the other key factor was I, I, uh, I was a keen tennis player and, and a regular partner, tennis partner, was uh, a pretty senior guy in purchasing who I think uh, enjoyed playing tennis and having a beer with me, so thought he'd get me into his department. So that was totally accidental. Um, and I worked in the private sector for a few years. And then this, this huge job in government came up as uh, procurement director for the, the biggest non-military government department, Department of Social Security, as it was called then, um, which was a multi-billion pound spend and, and just looked really interesting. And I'd never really thought about the public sector, um, but I, I sort of went for it and got it. So I, I stayed there three years and then went back into the private sector with NatWest, but then when I moved into consulting uh, in 2000, after NatWest got taken over by RBS, then I found, I think the combination of having worked as a procurement director in government gave me credibility, but the government client, like the fact I had 20 years of private sector experience too. So I found most of my consulting work then for the next 10 years uh, was in government. And it was both consulting and interim, so my stint in the, uh, the ID card scheme, for instance, was um, was as an interim as the acting commercial director, um, and, and I found it fascinating. And then the last few years, when I've been still doing a bit of consulting, but mainly writing about procurement, uh, I've I've written about public and private sector. But you know, one of the great <laughs> one of the great things about public procurement, government procurement, is it's in the news all the time. Mm -hmm. So if someone and topics to write about. Um, you know, if I was short of a topic, I could read the Financial Times or the Times or Wall Street Journal, and you'd always find a story that had a public procurement angle. So I, I, I still find the whole area of, uh, of public procurement absolutely fascinating. That's great. That's great. So it gave you uh, gave you a lot of fodder, uh, sounds like. Um, but, uh, you know, just to go back, um, I think... Um, you know, I've read one of one of your most read pieces, uh, you know, on Public Spend Forum and Spend Matters has been about um, uh, differences between private and public sector procurement. And given that you know you've uh, you've crossed both of those uh, spaces, uh, I'd be curious both you know from your perspective, as well as you know what you've heard from readers over time, because I think you know we we still see comments on those posts. Um, what, do you, what are those biggest differences in your mind? Yeah, I, I think people tend to to immediately um, consider that the sort of regulatory or legislative angle must be the biggest difference, mm -hmm. um, and and it's and it's no doubt you know that's true. We all know that you have less flexibility in some cases. You have more limited markets. You, you do have to work within whatever rules you're, you're given in the public sector. Um, but I, I believe the, the bigger difference, and you know, that is a difference. The bigger difference is just this whole point about being in the public eye and you're working on, on projects and procurements that are, that are clearly linked to policy objectives and hopefully the greater good for, for citizens and uh, taxpayers and so on. So you have this totally different aspect of what you're doing that, that frankly you just don't think about when you're working for Mars or Ford or mm -hmm. that way. Um, and I always found that fascinating. So it was, 
it's like in the public sector, you've got all the things I, I think the private sector procurement people think about, markets and category management and supplier management and all, all the good professional stuff. But then you have this whole additional consideration, which is, well, what's the impact of this politically? Uh, if we choose this supplier, are there things there that might come out and, and we find ourselves in the newspapers? Um, how will the uh, you know, the local mayor feel about this if you're working in local government. Um, so that, that to me made it, made it frustrating at times, but mm. also really, really interesting. And I, I think I said in that article, I would, you know, I would never, <laughs> I'd never dissuade people um, from go, for going for public procurement jobs. I mean, understand the issues, but they can be incredibly rewarding and, and just interesting. And, and you, and as I did one Sunday morning 12 years ago, you find yourself personally on the front page of the newspaper every now and again. <laughs> that can be a good thing or a bad thing, I guess. Uh, yeah, this it seems like it be a bad thing if you end up on the front page of the Financial Times for procurement reasons. <laughs> well, this, this wasn't a, it was actually some leaked emails when I was working on, the, on a sensitive project. And I knew I hadn't leaked the emails, so I wasn't too worried about it. But it was quite... quite uh, um, yeah, a bit of a shock to see my name on the front page of the Sunday Times. <laughs> well, that's great. We'll have to look that up again. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm just curious, uh, you know, you, I think you framed it well. You have to do all the normal things that you do in procurement and private sector. Uh, but on top of that, now you have all these other considerations that you take political or social objectives, et cetera. Um, what do you think is the impact of that besides, you know, potentially being put on the newspaper? Uh, is, is it, is it good? Is it, you know, I, I, yeah. What's, what's, what's the impact of that in terms of being able to get to the right outcomes then? I think, I think what it, what it certainly means for more senior people at, in procurement mm -hmm. is they, they need to have some some very well developed personal skills. Now, I think that's true in the private sector as well. Mm -hmm. You know, we are, it, it's it's become more obvious during my time in procurement that the the technical skills are very important, but those interpersonal skills, being persuasive, listening skills, you know, empathy, if you like, um, are are very important. But I think if you're working in senior levels in the public sector they're almost emphasized more because you're you you may well be dealing directly with um with pol um with both policy people mm -hmm. uh, who differently to most of us commercial people and even with um you know with with ministers with politicians with councillors whoever it might be uh, or police chiefs whatever um and and okay it's still interpersonal skills but it's i think even more so than in the private sector. There's something about being able to put yourself in their shoes mm -hmm. and relate what you're saying to, to what's driving them, um, which comes down to, to trick, sometimes tricky issues around selection of suppliers or uh, making sure that performance elements you put into contracts are really going to deliver the sort of behavior from the supplier that, that we all want. Um, and there's there's limited room for error because, as I say, if things go wrong, it tends to be a lot more public than if they go wrong at a, at a private sector firm. So, the the people I've 
seen who are most effective at senior levels in government procurement uh, are very good with working, uh, very good at working with both their senior colleagues, but also sometimes, you know, government ministers, yeah. representatives and, and so on. Um, and I think there's still, there's still something around a, a sort of commerciality. I don't think it makes them any less commercial. Because um, I, I, was, I was thinking about this the other day. There's, there's, we talk about the interpersonal skills. We talk about technical skills like how to run a, a regulated procurement process. Um, or in the private sector, running a sourcing process or an e-auction or something. But there's, there's something around this commerciality word, I think which we often miss and, and some of it can be trained, but maybe some of it is natural. And there's something there about understanding what drives value from contracts and understanding how suppliers behave and, and, all, and that sort of thing that I think is, is quite hard to capture, but feels like it's, it's important in, in any procurement role, quite honestly. Great, great. Now, uh, you know, I, it's interesting you talk about um, kind of the interpersonal skills, but because I think one of the pieces that I've written uh, that's <laughs> over 10 years ago is still getting a lot of play is um, about stakeholders in uh, public and public. So I, I think it, it, it um, really mirrors your, uh, the points you're making. Um, so Peter, um, you know, I, there, there's a topic we want to spend kind of uh, some some bit of time on, which is barriers to entry. Before we get to that, though, um, you know, just curious. One of the questions we typically ask is, you know, given your vast experience, um, what is um, what do you think are the most important capabilities? Let's say three most important capabilities uh, that are needed within public procurement to be successful. Um, it's probably a bit of overlap with what I've just said, to be honest. I think, I think interpersonal skills is, is a sort of, uh, a, a rather large bucket to say that's one, but, um, I, I think a lot of interpersonal skills come down to, to listening and being personally persuasive. doesn't mean being a, a salesman or saleswoman necessarily, but it is something about being able to put your point of view across in a, a good, empathetic way and get people to listen to you, but also being able to listen back again. So not a million miles away, actually, from what you might want in a good salesperson. Um, I think on the, on the technical side, I guess one of the things that I wasn't trained in when I was younger, and I'd probably go back and maybe do more if I was starting again, um, is around project and program management. I think that's that's perhaps particularly important in the public sector, where certainly a lot of the major things I worked on were were big government programs of which procurement was an important part, but it probably mm -hmm. wasn't all of. Them. Mm -hmm. Here in the military, for instance, you know everything's a program, and 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 the um, acquisition part is is only an element of. It. Um, and then I think that there are some technical skills around public procurement, and actually an area I've written about a lot over the years is, is evaluation process, for instance. Uh -huh. I think that's necessarily one of the top three, but it, it's something that even the, the biggest uh, UK government guidance on procurement just doesn't really cover at all. It just sort of says, now you evaluate the bids. 
And yet, if you look at where some of the biggest problems have been, and there's one years ago that literally cost the UK taxpayer a hundred million pounds mm-hmm. damages for a, an unhappy <laughs> bidder, um, and it was down to, to people screwing up the evaluation process. So, you know, and maybe it comes back partly to my sort of mathematics background, but there there are some quite deep technical skills around running a public procurement exercise properly to get a good result in terms of both the commercial outcomes and also doing it legally. Um, and, and, you know, it's great if you have the interpersonal skills, but if you, if you mess that up and cost the taxpayer a hundred million pounds, then, um, then that's a bit of an issue really. I'll stick at that. I could go on about. Yeah. Skills. Yeah. No, I think, I think, I think, I think you're spot on here uh, because I think one thing and that I take away from all of this is right is how interesting public procurement can be and challenging, right? You have to do all the normal things like you said up front and, and then uh, much more. Uh, yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, it, it does take a lot and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, I think all those different considerations, et cetera. So I think you've captured it well. Well, um, let me switch over to another topic. If, um, which uh, I'd like to spend a bit of time on. Uh, you know, one of, one of the things that Public Spend Forum is doing, our mission is around um, creating open government markets where you know, government can easily find suppliers um, and get to them. And similarly, suppliers, small, medium, uh, even larger, uh, can more easily traverse the uh, public sector landscape. So um, one topic that you know we've been focusing on is barriers to entry, which has a lot of interest, and and we're launching a study on this. Um, but I'd like to maybe start off and ask you on that study. You know, um, so barriers to entry in government markets. Um, could you talk about that bit? I know you've done some workshops and you've written about this uh, topic yeah. as well. And so, what are the biggest barriers for um, you know whether we're talking small medium enterprises or just firms in, in general? I think it, it, it's a great topic and I, you know, I approve of the work you're doing with, with GovShop, clearly, or I, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Um, but I think when, when you, look at, you look at barriers to entry, some of them are, are sort of intrinsic, you know, just the size of government. It, it is hard for small suppliers to know where to start and, and how to find opportunities. But what struck me when I, I thought about this time ago and wrote a bit about it, um, was how many of the the issues and the barriers are are totally self-created by the public sector. Um, So, I mean, for example, we've generally seen a trend in the UK, certainly in the last 20, 30 years, um, to aggregate spend, and and it's well-intentioned. See, oh, well, if we do bigger contracts, we'll get better deals and save money. Of course, as soon as you put bigger contracts together, suppliers. Naturally, in my experience, procurement people overestimate um, economies of scale. Well, I, frankly, a lot of and economies of scale. Um, so, so, yeah, so we create huge contracts and we wonder why small firms don't bid for them. We, we lump things together. So, so the aggregation may be just geographical, buying the same thing across a bigger area, or it could be we put different goods yeah. services. Mm-hmm. So if you think about the growth of TFM, total facilities management, mm-hmm. 
let's go out and do one contract for all our facilities, catering, cleaning, security, buildings, maintenance. That's fine. But again, you've, you've ruled out the small local catering supplier or cleaning supplier. Um, we ask for more and more certification. Um, and and the, the EU and UK governments are partly to blame for this. You know, whenever something goes wrong with a supplier, one of the answers is, oh, we should have asked those questions in the qualification. Let's add another, another hoop they have to jump through. Um, and it, it all makes it more difficult. And that plays into tendering, getting harder and bigger and longer and the 50-page document and all the rest of it. Although, to be fair, in that case, I think certainly the UK government has tried to do some things about simplifying bidding. Um, but, but even things, it's not just the complexity of the bidding, it's things like the timing. So there's been more and more use of frameworks here um, and call-off contracts and so on, which, which can be good. Things like G Cloud, the digital marketplace in the UK has been fairly successful for SMEs. Um, but because it's not a fully regulated process, if you like, people put out requirements and it's, um, right, we need your response by, by next Monday. And this is Thursday. And whereas the big firm can probably find somebody to put that together, uh, the small firm struggles because the, the, you know, the boss is active in the firm and mm -hmm. she's, <laughs> she's already doing six other things. She hasn't got time to write a bid in the next 48 hours. Um, I think also procurement people love uh, stopping the maverick spend, which is fine, getting control of spend. But if you go back some years where there was a bit more stuff that went on maybe without the professional procurement people knowing about it, some of it might have been a bit dodgy, some of it might even have been corrupt. Uh, but it did sort of give the small supplier an opportunity to find somebody in the organization who was willing to take a chance with them and give them a small piece of work perhaps. And now, again, that tends to have gone and it's all got wrapped up in the, the professional procurement thing. Um, and, and the last thing on my list was regulation, which links back to that certification thing, but just mm -hmm. more regulation, making it tougher generally for, for small businesses. So a lot of those barriers, I say they, ha they have been self-created. They, they're not inevitable. It could break up contracts. It could stop aggregating different services into huge prime contractor deals. Make sure tenders are uh, appropriate to the size of the business and don't take three million man hours to complete. Uh, there's, there's lots of positive stuff we, we can do. Um, not inevitable that small firms can't compete. Yeah, and maybe we can just kind of just talk about that, the uh, aggregation uh, just a bit more. I mean, do you think that supposed benefits that lead to aggregation are realized or are they even there to begin with? Um, it depends on, on the market. Um, I mean, you don't need to have a master's in, in economics to understand that the, the scale curves and the, the economies of scale curves are very different for, for different things you're buying. Um, and the fact is for an awful lot of services and, you know, government is buying more and more services compared to goods as done over the years. Um, aggregation in services doesn't follow the economy of scale curve that a traditional manufacturing item might. So probably the ultimate actually is, uh, is something like software 
where you can see that rather than buying one license for, for Microsoft Office, if you can go out and, and offer a million licenses to Microsoft, you're going to get a deal that is a seriously good deal in terms of cost per license. Um, but even a lot of manufactured goods now, because manufacturing's got more flexible, if you're buying laptops or cars or whatever, um, the economies of scale are probably not as great as they used to be. But when you come to a lot of services, you know, consulting, legal, professional services, facilities management services, uh, back office outsourcing, economies of scale are pretty limited because if you, um, I know I'm talking about a basic example here, uh, but I mean, cleaning 100 offices pretty much costs you 100 times what cleaning one office costs, if you see what I mean. There's a bit of economy yeah. of scale, maybe on the sales side, on the overheads, but you know, 80% of the cost of that work are the, are the people in that office. So, yeah, no, so there's, no, sorry, go, continue. Yeah, I, so, so I, there's a lot of stuff government buys where I think it, it really does um, exaggerate or have an have a unrealistically high expectation of what uh, economies of scale are going to get, my view. I think that's that's a great point, and and that's why I wanted to ask a bit further because I, I think to your point exactly about um, services versus products at a general level, um, you know there is almost diseconomies of scale when you because uh, more people you add, there's more complexity to the business, and then you potentially at some point start adding more overhead. So another conversation for another time, but. But I think you raise a good point because it does lock out many companies. But you know, you, you pointed out some solutions here. You, so you mentioned a few things, size of government, a lot of self-created barriers, certifications, regulations, uh, and so forth. I mean, are there any good examples um, that you've seen of, you know, whether it's local uh, governments or uh, at, at, you know, at the central level uh, where they're taking steps to address these right now? Yeah, I, I mean, the digital marketplace in the UK is interesting because it's, it's all sorts of IT products and services. And they've done that on the basis of the, the formal regulated competition part is, is really sort of fairly basic qualification. So if you meet the threshold on some key, uh, key criteria, you're in, and then it's a sort of marketplace which people can call off from and it and it is still regulated but it's made it it has made it easier for small companies to at least get listed there and get um you know get onto the radar for potential buyers doesn't mean they'll all win lots of work but um and i think it's frankly it's misused probably used illegally in some cases but i think generally it's been a good initiative i think another thing maybe for another day there's been in the last maybe five years mm -hmm. um um, a bigger focus on social value, particularly mm -hmm. in local government, so at state, city, town level, um, where suppliers are expected to offer some some social benefits, if you like, above and beyond we might think of as the basic value for money. Um, I think the cities that have done that well, say in the UK, been quite creative in terms of what they're looking for from suppliers, and often it's the smaller perhaps local suppliers who can come up with some creative ideas um someone <laughs> someone was telling me that uh, this is probably not very politically correct in the in the days of 
vegetarian and veganism, um, but a city in the north of England where I come from has got the, the meat supplier is going out and doing cookery lessons in, in some of the more disadvantaged schools in, in the area. So, you know, that's, that's an added value uh -huh. point um, that probably helped that local supplier win the work against a big national meat supplier, let's say. Mm -hmm. So, I think, you know, the whole social value area is um, is is interesting, uh, and I think there are parts of the UK I say that are quite leading edge on that. Other parts just haven't haven't really embraced it at all. But uh, maybe that's a conversation for another day. Yeah. Well, I know we have limited time here, and uh, you've got to run off. Um, so, uh, and this conversation, we uh, perhaps we can, you know, as we gather more data, Peter. Uh, we'd love to have you come back and maybe uh, we can talk about some of the some of that and what we're finding oh. there. Um, so well thank you so much by the way I really appreciate your time that's, that's quite all right or always always a pleasure <laughs> well, great well uh, thanks everyone and again uh, you know this is Peter Smith from the UK and we'll be posting uh, Peter's bio and contact. Um, don't worry, no emails, et cetera, Peter. <laughs> Just your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> and and, and uh, you can find a lot more and we'll post some of the articles that we mentioned uh, that Peter has written. And we're, uh, I'm personally grateful to Peter for uh, you know, teaching me a lot and, and really especially about UK, Europe uh, and procurement in general. So thank you so much, Peter. And I uh, hope to see you to grab uh, uh, you know, uh, join you at a pub soon in London. Many thanks, Raj. Thank you. Thank you.